Hello everyone and welcome to Education Checkup. I'm Johnette Magner. We're a weekly podcast here at KTBS that covers what is happening in education in Northwest Louisiana. And we especially like to highlight the many good things that some of you don't always hear about. My co-host for this podcast is Dr. Philip Roseman, a well-known cardiologist in Northwest Louisiana, but what you may not know about him is that he has also been a true leader in education reform and improvement across the state. He's the founder of the Alliance for Education, co-founder of the shreveport Bossier Business Alliance for Higher Ed, and he received the Distinguished Friend of Education Award from the Louisiana Department of Education. Dr. Roseman, welcome, and would you like to introduce our guest? I would like to do that. Uh, I love to be able to introduce people who I have uh, tremendous respect for. And today we have Dr. Lamar Gorey, who has uh, been born and raised here. Uh, went off to Texas for just a little while, uh, but came back to Louisiana as a superintendent of the Caddo Parish Schools during a time when we had gone through a series of superintendents. And he has uh, truly stabilized uh, Caddo Parish School System, improved the Caddo Parish School System. He and his administrative leaders and principals, teachers, uh, and we have a whole lot to be thankful for for what you've done. So you. uh, we're appreciative of having you and, and for you to be able to inform our uh, uh, viewers and about what's going on in the school system. So let's just start. I'll, just, uh, I'll make it easy for you from the first is, do you have any good news about uh, <laughs> oh, the school wow, system that you want to share? I'm going to well, just open it up. Well, thank you both first for this opportunity. Uh, Dr. Roseman is, has been a true friend, uh, not only to Caddo Parish Public Schools, but to the public education system across our state. And, and of course, my dear friend, Jeanette, who's mm -hmm. worked with us, uh, not only in your capacity at the station, but in so many ways before you returned to the news station. So, so thankful thank uh, for you. the opportunity to always sit beside you. Uh, so many great things are happening within our school system. You know, um, well, as you go through and navigate a, a, a pandemic and you look at all the opportunities that that provided, and we've decided to look at it as an opportunity more so than the challenges that, that were provided uh, as we've gone through and looked at how do we now create opportunities for children. Uh, we have so many things to celebrate. You know, we, we say, and, I, and a lot of school systems say this, but it's really true for us. We were on the cusp of truly amazing great things happening as we entered the test season mm -hmm. as we left for the pandemic and that was disrupted so uh, if there's one thing that I'm really sad about is that our that our beautiful children our teachers did not get a chance to experience the great results that they would have seen from that testing season but at the same time we are truly excited about the opportunity to come back from that and to build on that and I think that's why we're seeing such quick growth as we've come out of the pandemic and as we looked at how we are re rebounding and providing opportunities from children who quite frankly uh, suffered the most. And I think when you look at a system of schools with about 70%, a little over 70% children being raised in homes of poverty, and, and we know the research is showing that uh, children from poverty suffered the most. Uh, and then we look at the gains that we're seeing in those families, we have a lot to be proud of. So really excited that a lot of the work that we started before the pandemic is paying off greatly as we move into this new season of opportunities on this side of the pandemic. You know, and some of that, some of that is in this area of literacy. I know right. that the state, uh, and we talked with the superintendent who talked about literacy as it revolves around at the state. 
And I know that y'all have these same significant gains in literacy here in Caddo Parish. We Could did. you tell folks a little bit about what you're doing, what's being done in the school system to really deal with the issue of getting children by the third grade able to read and ready to roll in school. And we want those really good numbers that we know you have too. Well, right, right, yeah, and I'll <laughs> give those out, yeah, but what I'll tell you is that we've seen, if you look across the board, post-pandemic, we've seen a 9% growth increase in our literacy rates, which is so important, and that's really looking at the fluency rates of our children at those lower grade levels. Now, I think one thing's important is that, and I think why we're seeing this, though, is because even pre-pandemic, uh, it was one thing that we did was we had made that commitment to all children being taught and on grade level, high quality curriculum. And, and in that respect, uh, I remember when I started this work, a lot of teachers and a lot of administrations looked at the conversation around, let's teach them where they are and we'll catch them up. Whereas we changed that philosophy around, we're gonna teach you where you should be and we'll build interventions in to catch you up and to make you, to support you. We had already began the conversation around, every child has a civil right to be taught on grade level. And it's our responsibility, if they're not there, to build in those supports and interventions. And, and, and Dr. Roseman, that was really challenging for teachers because that's not something we were used to, but that's something we believed in. And we were pushing teachers and pushing children to achieve at that higher level. I do believe because we had began that work pre-pandemic as we came out of the pandemic, it prepared us to teach children where we saw exorbitant numbers of children that were not on grade level at that point. I do believe because of that hard push towards pushing children out of their comfort zone, that's why we saw uh, such incredible growth. Now, I will give the state credit, and I think the state will give us credit too, though, is that the professional development was just outstanding as we looked at how we began the, the, to support the state's work around the science of reading training and just amazing training for our teachers. And again, I think when you look at the science of reading, though, not only did it help our students in our, our traditional students, it helped our English language learning populations. It helped uh, so our special education students. This training was just really had been vetted and it had been uh, so much time had been invested in it across our country. Uh, and so many systems such as Mississippi had saw such great results from this training. And we really looked a lot at their models and things that they had done. States that served similar populations as our, as our state and really built on and learned from those models. And, you know, I think even Dr. Bromley has given us credit several times around the model that the state follows. A lot of that work you saw uh, begin right here in our, in our Caddo Parish too. Super. So uh, really great things coming out of that. Yeah, and uh, you know, you talk to parents and they tell you, you know, this is just getting back to phonics. This is getting right. back to the things that I understand. Right. And so I'm able to help my child. And, uh, and, I, and, I, and I don't know if that's true or not, but it seems like that return to the old style phonics yeah. turned yep. out to be. It, it is a pendulum, it's that good old pendulum swing <laughs> that we call it education. But again, I do think, and I'm so glad that we did realize that a, a good strong phonics based approach to reading is appropriate. Uh, I do think that it's a blend in some ways though, but again, that good strong phonics base, but often in a tier one environment with great supports, great resources, but more importantly, great tier one support 
uh, for teachers and children has made a, a wonderful difference. And again, our teachers, I cannot begin to thank our teachers for the for the hours. This is over 50 hours of training, so this yes, is almost a, a master's degree yeah. uh, that our teachers and uh, many of our administrators have invested uh, in the training. And we have a significant number of our, of our personnel that work with this lower literacy grades that have been trained in the science of reading training. Uh, we have trainers of trainers, so we are prepared to continue to see this grow. And you know, we've always stressed uh, the importance of literacy. And, and you know, there's so so much research around the gateways of literacy and what that leads to in the future. So we know that we have to continue to support uh, that success in literacy. But you know, when you see nine percent growth, uh, that that's certainly something that we that that in, in encourages our teachers to continue to support that. You know, one of the things that. Dr. Bromley also talked about is that math was jealous of reading, so, right. uh, uh, which is the concept of uh, we've got some problems in math that we want to deal with just like we did with literacy right. and, and the ability to do that. Can you talk about some of the things that y'all are thinking about and what's going on as it relates to math education? So I think if you were to ask me what was I most proud of as we've come on, on this side of the pandemic, it would be the work that we've done in math. In fact, uh, if you look at the, uh, the conversation I had an opportunity to have on mm -hmm. Capitol Hill last week, it was around math and the great things that we've done in math. And, and you know, what we've done is, I think if you look at middle school math, and traditionally that has been uh, the struggle of our country. Yeah. Uh, how are we performing at that numerously when you hit that middle school grades? And, you know, I remember uh, sitting at my house in the midst of the pandemic and I thought about what are those areas where we are truly struggling? And, uh, you know, we knew that the literacy work was gonna begin and the state was gonna provide us with this immediate support. But if you look at middle school math, it was in trouble. So a couple of things that we did, and we use a lot of our ESSER funding to do this, is that we chose to double block our math. Now, we've double block classes before and, and, and just throwing time at anything, it's like throwing money at it. If it's not managed effectively, it does not matter. So we knew that this had to be well-structured time. So we created professional development supports around the time. We looked at this same concept around every child must be taught on grade level. We looked at providing supports, those interventions, for children when they're not on grade level. But what this did too was it gave us an opportunity to use ESSER dollars to create significant stipends. We uh, added a $12,000 stipend. So everyone that was willing to teach middle school math, <laughs> you're gonna make 12 more thousand dollars. And that's more than a thousand bucks. So, uh, <laughs> so $12,000 truly did provide me an opportunity to hire 50 additional math teachers. For the first time uh, in my tenure as superintendent in this parish, I don't have vacancies there and I have certified teachers. And we over two, we saw a 5% growth, a 4% growth the first year, 5% growth the second year. So we too, there 9% growth over two years that we've seen. So these are significant growth in math. Uh, we also chose to do this with high school algebra and geometry too because we know those are high gateway classes where a lot of research around your success in algebra and what that mm -hmm. speaks to for you as right. a citizen in a community. So we really looked at that, those windfall dollars, and we looked at how can we use them to make the biggest difference. And in fact, my conversation on the Hill was around, this is something that we know, we have the data support that it's worked, but as we see these dollars go away, we as district leaders now, some things we have to sustain somehow. So really just stressing uh, even as you know, they deal with their own fiscal issues and cliffs, right. uh, how do we make sure we do everything we can to continue some of these efforts? So really excited about that. Yeah, so you just touched on something that, that uh, I've been wondering about, and I think about 
when we had Katrina and we had all that Katrina money came in mm -hmm. and then we didn't have it. it goes. And yeah. even if you recognize that these are kind of one-time monies, mm -hmm. you still start things with those monies, as you said, that you want to continue and you're, you're not gonna have that right. a year from now. I mean, what, are, what all are you, you doing to try to prepare for that cliff? So my team was smart. Of course, the first thing we did was we identified what were those non-reoccurring costs? How could we look at things like uh, the, our, our health clinics that we added to many of our schools? Those things that are one-time costs, some technology costs, some things, and we did those things. Then we looked at those things that were reoccurring costs, and we then looked at what we're called, we, we've called academic return on investment, and we've really tracked that. What is this ac the actual return on investment of the dollars? So then we're looking at how do we begin to slowly move things off the books as we've gone through this three-year cycle. But I'll be honest with you, there's a huge list of things that we still want uh, <laughs> that we got to now prioritize around what can we afford. Uh, I do think in a system where you have a declining uh, student population, that's where some big decisions will have to be made. You know, I tell my board all the time that this board, uh, where we are as a system, where we are as a community, will make some very big decisions in the next few years as we look at a what is our fiscal health, but more importantly, as we look at what's the level of service that we provide to children. And hopefully that we will continue to make these decisions embedded in the data and the facts that we have, because my team has done an amazing job of capturing that data and really uh, providing our board with the data to really drive the right decisions. But we, we know that in a political climate, that's not always mm -hmm. an easy thing to do. Yeah, in a pandemic, you know, you're, you're using, you've used that money right. to be able to really experiment and determine what things really work and what things maybe don't work as well. Right. Now you're taking all those things that you're working and you're saying, okay, what's the, what's the return on investment on each one of those? And those are the decisions that the school boards are going to have to make all over the country. You're going to have to make, Bozier's going to have to right. make uh, all over the country. There, I'm kind of a political junkie. I like to listen to debates mm -hmm. and I'll tell you that uh, on this next issue I want to ask you about, this is something that comes up in every debate. And as it relates to, to public education, it's early child care and early childhood education. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about what's happening in Caddo uh, around the issue of early childhood educa education? Because I know being around listening that there's a lot of things that are going on that involve the community, a lot of things that are being done within the schools, a lot of things being done by the federal Head Start program. So mm -hmm. could you let us know a little bit about that? Right, you, you know, if you were to ask me, probably one of the things that I'm most, and, and our community first is an amazing community that mm -hmm. always comes together to support. There's so many examples of that, but one of the areas where I'm probably most proud is this early childhood conversation. Uh, there are so many people in this community that have come together around how do we provide more opportunities from the early childhood perspective. Uh, really proud of our uh, community foundation who has taken the lead in really working with a group of, uh, of just gra grassroots people around how do we create this opportunity around increasing the seats. You know, there was a time that I really felt that we needed universal pre-K. Uh, I don't know, I totally agree with that now because I think we have so many private opportunities right. that pa parents are happy with, okay? Right. And, and I encourage them to continue those. But I do believe we have now worked very closely with uh, the community and with our school system to make sure that wherever there's a need for a child, that seat's available. 
But I think even more importantly, uh, you know, when I became aware of this uh, research around this 30 million word gap, where it speaks to if a kid, if a child is not exposed to these 30 million words from the age of one to three, uh, there's this 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 academic, this neurological um, gap that's created that nothing can fix. Uh, and, and that was something that kept me up at night. And that, that's where, you know, I started working with people like Christy Gubson with the Community Foundation and with, you know, mm -hmm. John Dean around how can we, and these are community people around, how can we increase space in those early childhood years? And, and that's where we've started working with, you know, wonderful organizations like Committee of 100 and different uh, groups around how can we increase uh, giving around, uh, you know, our state has this matching dollar fund. Uh, so let's increase giving around mm -hmm. that in our community so that we can increase uh, dollars that we're putting into uh, providing families with vouchers so that they can get earlier access. So, and that's the space where we've spent most of our time recently. Of course, the school system has a role. We have, we have, more, seats, we have more seats now than we, we are filling. And, but we are making those available. We're doing those uh, pre-K roundups and things of that nature. So we are still pushing the pre-K program, but also pushing that one to three year program very aggressively too. Working yeah, you know. closely with Head Start as well. Yeah. So uh, do you think parents fully appreciate the importance of kindergarten readiness? I, you know, I do. I think COVID uh, has definitely, I think, well, let me say this. I think that it was very easy not to appreciate that in a COVID situation. And I think it's really been a challenge. Uh, I think if parents are given the choice of, it was the COVID fear over overran that. And one thing, you know, I told people that when we returned children, you know, we made a decision, we returned children, our elementary children to school full-time uh, the September of COVID. And, and my conversation there was that I felt we were facing two pandemics. It was an academic pandemic and there was a medical pandemic and both were very serious. But I felt, felt that both could have life-altering consequences, okay? And I do think though, when you looked at your babies, those four, three and four-year-olds, that academic pandemic to families was not worth the risk. Uh, I think they felt there was enough time to catch them up. And in some ways that could be true, but um, I do think when you got past K, um, it was a, a non-negotiable. We really needed those babies in school. You know, I like the, what you were talking about earlier with early childhood education, that don't forego some of the things that have been going on for years and years and years in the churches and, oh, heavens and no. families, no. you mm -hmm. know, to, to to, to do that work too. So. Well, and let me say this, they're only, and one thing I had to learn, especially when you talk about things like universal pre-K, and especially when you look at uh, declining student populations, our tax dollars are only going to go so far. We've gotta be very careful with where we allocate them. And if there are things that families are enjoying on their own without uh, burdening the tax base, let's let the families enjoy that. Because that those are, opportunities for us uh, to, to be good stewards for our community as well. And we really do look for every opportunity to be good stewards to our community fiscally because we know our community has been so wonderful to support us when we need things. Now, let's, let's, let me switch from the young, young to the older now okay. and talk a little bit about the school career connections. Uh -huh. That's another thing mm -hmm. that in these debates that I've heard over and over again is the different governors' uh, uh, thoughts about how they would change things in terms of building better workforce development in our uh, in our state, uh, and also you know how they can connect school and career. 
uh, and how maybe we've been faulty in some of the things that we've been doing. So talk a little bit about school career connections and how what are you doing now in terms of that dual enrollment, all those sort of things related to the end of school. Okay, you know, I do, one thing I'll speak to is I'm very proud from a dual, a dual enrollment perspective that we are running some very successful dual enrollment programs throughout our district. And this is something that we actually started officially within our transformation zone schools. And those were at Woodlawn and Booker T. Washington High School. And this concept was about how do we create this fast track where students are working with our community colleges so they're graduating not only with their high school diplomas, but their associate degrees and you know we're seeing now upwards of 30 kids a year come out of come out of high school with both degrees and, and imagine for a family especially an economically disadvantaged family the advantage of your child graduating from high school with half their college done and it costs you nothing. So this yeah. is a huge advantage for families. And I think that's a great connectivity and we're, going to, we're continuing to push that and to grow that program out. We're also at the same time at our Career Center, we're continuing to see um, students graduate every day with their credential-based, uh, industry-based certifications. And, uh, but, but, what, but what I will say in full transparency, this is an area where our board's gonna push us. Uh, you know, we are a big diverse district and I do think that creates some unique challenges from a proximity perspective perspective, but uh, our district and our board especially is very interested in how we can do this better. Uh, I think as you look at the workforce that exists in our community today, it's different from what exists uh, 10, 20 years ago. And really making sure that what we're offering and what we're preparing students for today is going to create the best community for Shreveport in five, 10 years. And, and it's a space where our board is very interested. I think we're doing a very, I think we're doing a good job, uh, but we're looking to do a great job in this area. So I do think that our community is going to see quite a few, uh, a lot of conversation in the next 24 months as it relates to what do we want our career center to look like in the future. <laughs> it's coming. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, it's coming. Mm -hmm. uh, what that career center is going to look like and uh, how we want to expand upon that and make sure that we're offering a state-of-the-art opportunity there. And we're, and we're in a time now where we're smart enough to know that not every child has to go to a four-year college uh, to be a productive, wonderful member of society. And we want to take advantage of that. One of the program I want to highlight I'm really excited about, and we were being pushed a lot in the community around providing uh, high-wage career opportunities uh, for minority children. And we were able to work with Gramlin, and we're working with three of our high-minority population high schools around this cyber innovation idea, and we're working with cyber innovation, and we've created this pipeline where we're introducing cyber innovation uh, curriculum and uh, cyber innovation certifications uh, to high minority populations of students uh, with a direct pipeline into Gramlin. So again, the conversation we've often uh, been criticized because minority students uh, felt they uh, community felt that we were funneling minority children into low wage positions, and we want to make sure that we have docu documented proof that that's not the case in our parish. You know, I'll, I just got off the phone before I came here talking to a lady at Willis Knighton who's working on a medical careers right. thing yeah, we that have you, really that you uh, talked about and that Keith Burton told me about. Right. And they were so proud of the fact that the five, five kids that have graduated from this thing this year, all five of them, they came from Booker T. Washington and mm -hmm. Huntington. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just bird and magnet, right. you know, and how these things can change families' lives and how proud they were of the students 
that maintain the discipline to do that. Right. You know, it, it, it was really eye-opening to them and they want to do more, I'll tell right. you that. And as so, we go into January and especially next year, our new allied health partnership with you with uh, the hospitals is going to be huge too. So really looking to uh, really revitalize and just really uh, put our, enti our entire career technology ed uh, opportunities on steroids and really stressing to families something that's often misunderstood just because you go to the career center does not mean you cannot go to college this is just an opportunity to be exposed uh, to different opportunities well, let me uh, I want to ask you one last question uh, uh, basically just a personal question really um, is you know you you grew up here you moved to Texas and then you moved back and you stayed here uh, what is it that brings you back to Shreveport? What is it that made you decide that you wanted to raise your your kids uh, in Shreveport? You know, I think, and, and I think really, uh, I'm often celebrated now because in, ten, in December 1st marks my 10th year of uh, as superintendent here. And, and that's something to celebrate. <laughs> I mean, because, you know, let's face it, we're a true urban system. Yeah. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, we, when I came home to lead the school system, we had gone through several superintendents. So I tell people, uh, don't, please don't think that Shreveport's a place that kept superintendents, because that's not the case. <laughs> uh, but I do yeah. believe that, uh, coming home, I serve from a different place in my heart. Uh, I returned home as a, a child who was, was the product of two Cattle Parish educators. So um, if you look at every opportunity that I had from as a child, from, a, from the, the basic things of food and nourishment, it came because of Cattle Parish. I think when you look at the opportunities I had educationally, it came because of Cattle Parish Public Schools. So I believe that when you look at everything that was in me, uh, every, every reason to succeed because of my church values, because of my family values, both my brothers and my mother all live here, I believe my connection to the community is different from your average superintendent. Uh, you know, I'm not someone that can mess this up, pack my bags and move away. Uh, this is my home. So I do believe it created a unique opportunity for me and I do believe that's why I've been able to survive even in a very urban setting. And I think, you know, you both know, I don't have easy board members that just shake my hand and say, we'll have it your <laughs> way. Uh, but again, I do think that's provided me with that uh, stick to itness to really navigate that system and, and make it work for our children in our community. Well, we're thankful. Uh, I know I can say for Johnette and, and a whole lot of people are around this community, we're thankful that you did do that and you came back home and uh, we're ho we'll hold you to the idea that you need to stay. I understand. <laughs> and, and I tell you, we are content as we can be. I think we, we are so comfortable in our lives in Shreveport. Uh, you know, we, uh, we are, our daughter just started college and I think uh, everyone thought they're gonna run away now. Well, no, not necessarily. <laughs> we are happy and content and enjoying being empty nesters in Shreveport. It is fun. And, and again, I tell people too all the time, Madison is 18 and living her best life. It's my 81-year-old uh, mother that needs me now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so true. We're good. That's great. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. And thank you to all of you for joining us today for Education Checkup. You can watch this podcast on ktbs.com or listen anywhere that you listen to your other favorite podcast. Have a good day and join us next time for Education Checkup. Thank you.